Almighty and living God, we pray that by the power of your Holy Spirit, you would help us to believe what is hard for us to believe, that we are redeemed. So visit us once again, Lord, through the word that sets us free. And may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. In his depiction of Christ in the Garden of Gethsemane during the the witching hours of Good Friday, in his picture of the Garden of Gethsemane, the, the 19th century French painter Eugene Delacroix depicted Jesus not kneeling serenely with folded hands and backlit by soft celestial light. No. Now, Delacroix instead painted Jesus sprawling flat in the dirt, almost writhing like a, a terrible ailment had overtaken him, outstretching his arms, anguish in his eyes, his hands out and, and open in a, a desperate gesture of pleading. Delacroix rendered the Father's incarnate Son twisted into a a golem of doubt and despair, as though he had been transfigured from, from God's own righteousness into a totem of God's rejection. So Delacroix shows what Paul said. St. Matthew, in his Gospel account of Gethsemane, he reports that the same Jesus who had boldly predicted his betrayal and crucifixion in the garden, he confides to his disciples that he is, quote, deeply grieved and agitated. Or, as the original Greek inelegantly lays it out there, Jesus tells them that he's depressed and confused. Remain with me here and stay awake, for I am so depressed I could die, Jesus says in the literal Greek. And then, according to Matthew, Jesus can manage only a few more steps before he throws himself down on the ground. And the word Matthew uses there in the Greek for throw himself down, it means to shudder in horror, stricken and helpless. In Gethsemane, Jesus is, in every literal sense of the Greek language, he is scared out of his mind. Or as the book of Hebrews describes Jesus on the eve of the Passion, Jesus is, quote, crying out frantically with great tears. Matthew shows you what Paul says today. Karl Barth says Jesus' prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane doesn't even count as prayer because it's, it's not a dialogue between the Son and the Father. It's entirely a, a one-way conver- conversation because it's, it's not just that the Father doesn't speak or answer back to the Son. It's that the Son only gets an empty dial tone. God is entirely absent from Jesus, as dark and silent to him as the whale's belly was to Jonah. The whale's belly to Jonah. Bart shows what Paul says. Martin Luther says when Jesus gets up off the ground in Gethsemane, there is nothing left of Jesus. There's nothing left of of Jesus' own humanity. He's, He's an empty 
vessel so that when Jesus drinks the cup, the Father will not move from him. When Jesus drinks the cup of wrath, he fills himself completely with us, with our sinfulness. At the well, the the woman ran away saying, Jesus told me everything I'd ever done, Luther points out. And in the garden, Jesus walks away, filled and running over with everything we've ever done. Luther shows you what Paul says. Let me show you. Let me show you. I spent the summer before I started seminary waiting tables in the dining room at this posh, upscale retirement condominium in Charlottesville because I was the same waiter for the same folks seven nights, week after week. I befriended some of them, especially a couple named Julian and Eleanor Hart. At our wedding, they gave Allie and me a a French saucepan in the shape of a heart which I later returned for a normal-shaped pot. And I still feel guilty about it. Eleanor was a famous artist, and Julian was a retired theologian. He'd grown up a a preacher's kid in South Dakota, and, and all through his childhood, he had been the best friend of Hubert Humphrey. Dr. Hart had taught at Yale for a number of years, and then towards his retirement, towards the end of his career, he was recruited by the University of Virginia to head their new religious studies department. When Julian and Eleanor found out that their charming, good-looking waiter was not only a graduate of that same religion department, but bound for seminary, they became determined to make fast friends with me. And so on many weekend afternoons or weekday evenings after my shift, they invited me up to their apartment for conversation and sherry. Always sherry, which up to that point in my life I had only cooked with. (laughs) I would have thought a Methodist of your advanced age would be a teetotaler, I said, when he offered me a glass for the first time. My father was, he said, but I'm free in Christ. And he said it in that prairie accent and then laughed and tapped his cane on the floor. We talked about UVA and the Methodist Church and William Faulkner. He talked about his upbringing and the connections that both of us had to the Plains states. We talked about the, the students he had taught who would soon be my teachers. We talked about his wife and the woman I planned to make my own. We sat on his patio one afternoon watching the hummingbirds when I told him how I planned to propose to Allie. You sound more troubled by it than enthusiastic, he said. Usually it takes a few years of marriage before you sound that way about marriage. And then he laughed and he tapped his cane on the cement and poured himself another draw of sherry. No, it's, it's not that I'm not excited, I said. It, it's, it's something else I've been struggling with. You sound like a man who needs more sherry, he said, pulling out the cork and pouring. He stared at the hummingbirds, silent in the sun, and and stubbornly sipping his sherry, waiting for me to unload my burden. And so I confessed to him how I had not yet proposed, but I had already decided not to invite my father to the wedding. And then I, I shared with him the why. Well, I did not want to invite him. The the alcoholism and infidelities, the the abandonment and and all the, the broken promises over the years. 
It sounds like you've set your mind on it, Dr. Hart said when I finished. So what troubles you? Well, I might have my reasons, I said, and, and they might be very good reasons. I think they are. But that doesn't change the fact that I'm supposed to honor my father and mother, aren't I? As much as I think it's a good decision, I said, I can't shake feeling guilty about all the anger and unforgiveness I still carry around with me like sacks of groceries and damp, rain-soaked paper bags. And he took a few sips of sherry and he nodded his head. And then without looking at me, he told me a story. My father, he said, as you know, he was a, a prairie pastor. Well... My father had a friend, a a colleague, I suppose you could say, a a Norwegian Lutheran pastor named Johan Osgard. He eventually went on to become president of Luther Seminary in Minnesota, Dr. Hart explained. Anyways, one time at some conference or another, Dr. Asgard told my father about a woman who was in his congregation. And Dr. Hart looked up at the clouds, thinking or trying to recall You know, I'm not sure what provoked him to tell my father this story, but I know my father, who who was sort of a fundamentalist, he loved to argue with non-pietists about the limits of grace. And Dr. Hart paused his story to laugh at the memory of his father, take a, a sip of sherry from the little short glass. Dr. Asgard had performed this woman's wedding just a few months earlier, Dr. Hart said. She came to see Dr. Asgard one afternoon, not long after the wedding. Dr. Asgard, I have to talk with you, she said, shaking and and trembling and, and crying. I must talk with you now. And so he knew she had something to confess to him. And he said to her, there's a liturgy in the hymnal for someone like you, someone in your situation. And Dr. Asgard opened the book up to to Luther's service of private confession and absolution from the small catechism. And he invited the woman to kneel there in front of his desk, just as he knelt beside her. And they began working their way through the ritual, Dr. Hart said. And she confessed to her preacher. She told him that before she'd been married or even met her husband, she'd had a relationship with a doctor. She was a nurse. And she'd become pregnant by the doctor. And the doctor, who wanted nothing to do with the child, pressured her and pressured her and pressured her into having an abortion. And Dr. Hart stopped and looked at me to make sure I understood. Bear in mind, he said, this was in the 1920s. She relented, Dr. Hart said, under his pressure, and the doctor arranged for a colleague to do it, and and she had the abortion. That was the end of the relationship with the doctor, she confessed to Dr. Asgard, crying. And Dr. Hart continued the story. When her husband started courting her, she felt like she should tell him what she had done, but she couldn't bring bring herself to tell him, Dr. Hart said. And when the relationship became serious, she felt like she should tell him what she had done, but she couldn't bring herself to tell him. And when he proposed to her, she felt like she should tell him what she had done, but still she couldn't tell him. And when they got married, every day she felt like she should tell him what she had done, but she could never bear to do it. Now, 
She said to her preacher on her knees in his office, Now, every time he touches me, all I can think about is what I've done and how I've betrayed him. And whenever he speaks a single word to me, all I can think about is what I keep myself from telling him. And when she finished confessing her story, Dr. Hart told me, this pastor stood up and he placed his hand on her forehead and he said, in the name of Jesus Christ and by his authority alone, I declare unto you the entire forgiveness of all of your sins. And then he made the sign of the cross across her. She wept for a long while, he told my father, Dr. Hart said. And then she stood up and she wiped her eyes and she straightened herself up and she said, Well now, I guess I better go home and tell my husband this story. And Dr. Asgard looked her straight in the eyes and he said, What story? What story? Christ sets us free from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Martin Luther says that Jesus, the curse, is our most tender comfort. In his commentary on Galatians, Luther paints a a picture of it. He shows what Paul says. He writes... Our most merciful Father, seeing that we were oppressed by the curse of the law and held under its power so that we could never have freed ourselves in our own strength, he sent his only Son into the world. And the Father said to him, Become that Peter, the denier. Become that Paul, the persecutor, blasphemer, and cruel executioner. Become that David, adulterer and murderer. Become that sinner, Adam, who ate the fruit in the garden. Become the thieves who hung from the cross. For a moment, son, become the person who has committed the sins of every human being. Be sure you pay and satisfy the penalty of them all. And then the law appears and says to Jesus, I find that you are a guilty sinner and such a great sinner that you have taken on your body the sins of every creature. Thus, I see no sins on anyone but you. Thus, you must die on the tree. And then the law lunges against Christ and kills him. But in such a way, the entire world is purified and cleansed of all sin. Now, since sin is abolished by this one man, God only sees throughout the whole world, but especially in those with faith, God sees not only cleansing, but righteousness. And if there remains some residue of sin due to Christ's glory that outshines the sun, God is unable to see it. I guess I better go home now and tell my husband this story. And the pastor replied, what story? What story? Dr. Hart repeated it, laughing to me, reveling, really, and and tapped his cane as applause. And I must have looked confused because Dr. Hart turned to me and suddenly became a teacher again. Once you've given the story over to Christ, Jason, there is no story any longer. This is what Christ Jesus 
does, he says. He takes our narrative up into his narrative. And when we entrust our narrative to him, the abortion, the infidelity, the unbelief, the the selfishness, the resentment, the the prejudice, the, the words spoken in anger, when we entrust our narrative to him, he absorbs our narrative into his narrative so that he can hand it back to us and say, your sins are forgiven. And pay attention Jason, he said, in case they don't teach you this in seminary. It's the calling of preachers, he said, whether they stand in a pulpit or sit in a pew. It is the calling of all Christian preachers to preside at that wonderful exchange. What story? Dr. Hart laughed again and raised his glass to a a delightful scoundrel in the sky. That woman, Dr. Hart said, she went home rejoicing, my father told me, and and had a long and happy life because she was no longer carrying her burden around with her because Christ Jesus was carrying it. If all the sins of the whole world are found in Jesus Christ, Jason, then they are no longer found in the world. If Christ is guilty of all the sins of the world, then we are all totally and entirely free from our sins. And then he took a sip of sherry and hummed a few notes of a song that was impossible not to recognize. It was joy to the world as far as the curse is found. I nodded and I thought over everything he had told me. And then I said, did you share that story to tell me I'm forgiven for not honoring my father? Forgiven for my sin? Oh, no, Dr. Hart laughed. I mean, you are, of course, but my father's friend told that story to him, and my father told that story to me, and now I've told this story to my friend in order to remind him that his father is forgiven of all of his sins. I must have blanched and all the blood drained out of me. You look like a man who needs a drink, Dr. Hart said, pouring me another sherry. Maybe several more, I mumbled. That's fine. That's fine, Dr. Hart chuckled. God's party doesn't really get going until the sinners show up. Isn't that right? Hear the good news. Whatever your story The hurt you can't let go of, the gossip and the backbiting and the double talk, the forgiveness you withheld until it was too late, the doubt that lingers, the disappointments you still resent, the relationship you let fester, the lies you shroud around your addiction, the truth you're too cowardly to come out with, whatever your story The handout you withheld, the the frustration that others in church aren't as faithful as you. The gift you gave with strings attached, the the if bombs you throw down as conditions of your love, the prodigal you won't welcome home, the prejudice, the self-righteousness and and sanctimony that, that feels good for a second, especially when it's about politics, that feels good for a second, but then it sticks like a bad smell on your shoe, the secret you keep hidden in the dark corner of your heart, whatever your story. What story? Christ Jesus has set you free from that story by becoming that story for you. 
offer to you in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.